The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head, and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priests shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. He shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil, which all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons, is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour, mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a great offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened, mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with the crushed new grain. You should put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys." Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting." and Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord." If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting, and the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it, as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys." And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places, that you eat neither fat nor blood. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, Friends, have you ever begrudgingly given a gift to someone? You know you have. 
You know, like the person who comes up and gives you a Christmas present, it's totally unexpected. It's a gift that should clearly be reciprocated. Or when the bad boss invites the entire office to his retirement party. Or the gal that you barely even know invites you to her baby shower. In cases like these, how much thought, how much heart, how much sacrifice goes into the gift that you purchase? How long do you save up and sacrifice to buy them something special and memorable? I would imagine not much, right? But oh, how different it is when you give a gift to someone that you deeply love. For them, you think about your gift ahead of time. You make sure to listen to whatever they like, whatever they're needing. You save up money. You go without things that you like so that you can surprise them with something especially meaningful. And you do this all with joy, do you not? Your sacrifice is not really a burden. It's a love-motivated gift of joy. As we dig into the book of Leviticus today, we're going to venture into the first section of the book, which deals with sacrifices and offerings presented to the Lord. You could call them love-motivated gifts given to the Lord. Today, we'll try to tackle the first three of the five offerings that are outlined within these first seven chapters of the book. The first three being the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Although these offerings are in other passages required, the sense that we get here in the first three chapters and the absence of imperatives within these first three chapters shows us, communicates to us, that at least here they are voluntary and offered freely from hearts of joy and thanksgiving. Now, since the section we'll be covering is long, let me just go ahead and tell you up front what I think kind of the main point of the entire thing is, and then how that main point will kind of divide into our sub-points of our sermon. So the kind of main theme I hope we leave here with today is that it is the grace of our saving holy king that leads his people to worship. And it is only because of that grace that our saving holy king receives and responds to the offerings of his people. Let me read that again. It is the grace of our saving holy king that leads his people to worship. And it is only because of that grace that he receives and responds to the offerings of his people. So regarding the the structure of the sermon itself, we're just going to break down that actual uh, main point. So our first point is just going to focus in on the grace of our saving holy king. The second point is going to focus in on that section that says that the grace leads his people to worship. That's going to be the longest section where we're going to have multiple subsections. And then the final section, we're going to come back to that last statement where it says that is only because of the grace that he, God, receives and responds to the offerings of his people. So our first point then is that it is the grace of our saving, holy king. Now, it is fairly easy to miss this, 
But the tone, the keynote of Leviticus 1 through 3 is actually joy and it's thanksgiving. And this makes for a most astonishing beginning to a book that many regard as being legalistic or even oppressive. But the picture that's being presented here is the exact opposite. Here we have voluntary gifts of great value spontaneously being offered to God by anyone who chooses to do so without tangible benefit for the person that's offering it. There couldn't be a more beautiful portrait of the uninhibited worship that ought to characterize the blessedness of the people of God. This passage, I believe, is meant to actually inspire us to draw us near to the Lord, to worship him and to call on us to respond to the Lord's grace in our lives by offering him our entire lives. Okay, so where do we see those three things? You're like, listen, I I literally just listened to that passage and I got none of that, okay? So where do I see that within this passage? Well, if you look back at just the very first verse of chapter one, again, once again, as we stated last week, the verse one says, the Lord called to Moses out of the tent of meeting that he was unable to enter, but the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel. Uh, My friends, grace flows from every facet of that section of the text. Every contour reflects a new dimension of grace. And I say that because just consider the fact that in spite of all of their grumblings, in spite of the fact that they just committed this horrendous act of treason and idolatry with the golden calf that God has chosen in grace to dwell amongst these people. Consider the fact that not only does he dwell with them and simply tolerate them, but he speaks to them. He initiates a new and beautiful pathway that they might commune with him. Consider the fact that he is directing them as to how they could approach him. From beginning to end, the only thing you could say about this is that it is the grace of God. Because just imagine if these sinful Israelites were the ones that were responsible to figure out a way to draw near to God. How would that go? Just imagine if they were the ones that were responsible to design and then figure out a proper process to present offerings to the Lord. Frankly, they would all be dead before nightfall. They'd be helpless and hopeless on their own. So it's important for us to just pause once again and meditate on the fact that we see grace all through this, even within the nitty-gritty of all the details surrounding the offerings and processes. These details that we read as cumbersome, once again, are not burdensome. They are not heavy-handed. They're not mean and demanding. They're actually expressions of love and care from God to his people. They are proofs of God's heart to bless and dwell amongst them. Secondarily, we see the grace of God in the fact that these laws and prescriptions are given to the people after the covenant 
with Abraham has already been formed. They're given after the people of God have already been rescued out of Egypt. They are given after God has already chosen to dwell amongst them. And what that means is that these sacrifices were never meant to save the people. These sacrifices are established to maintain, to enjoy, to, when needed, restore the covenant relationship that God has already formed with his people. That's significant. And it's towards that end that God speaks. And I would just say, just as a quick aside, I I, I pray that as you reflect upon this, that you would note that this is the exact same reality that we live in today as well. That we would never have a relationship with the Lord unless he first called out to us. That we would never know how to properly worship him as he desires if he has not revealed that in his word. That we would never have a relationship of deep communion and fellowship with God if God himself did not and does not save us and provide a way for us to be with him. Thus, friends, our worship, as well as Israel's, is actually a response to God's gracious redeeming work in our lives. All of our worship, all of our giving, all of our sacrifice, all of our service doesn't save us. No, it's in response to his outpouring of love. And that leads us then to our second point. The second point that it is the grace of the holy, of our saving holy God that leads his people to worship. Now, if you go back again to the beginning of the text, we find this, this, this real fun kind of word play, uh, play on words that helps us to, I believe, understand the tone in which these first three chapters should be read. Verse one again says, the Lord called to Moses, spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, quote, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now, I like this because this phrase, bring an offering, is a a play on words, actually. It, It literally means to present a present to the Lord or to offer an offering to God. And I like that because because especially in these first three offerings, we see that it is in response to the gracious saving provision of our holy king that we as his subjects present the king with presents to honor and thank him for all that he's done for us. Now, a couple of preliminary comments would likely be beneficial for us as we venture into, the, frankly, the next couple weeks that we deal with the various sacrifices, these detailed procedures about the offerings. So a couple just kind of higher level observations. I've got three observations that will guide us today, but, but especially as we move on through this book. And the first one is this, that the offerings of... Uh, The ordering of the offerings in these first couple chapters is complicated. Uh, At least to me, 
If my week has been any proof of it, they are very confusing at times. Because what you'll find in chapters 1 through 6 is that we have these, these, these explanation in the five primary offerings, and it, it goes through the burnt, the grain, the peace, the sin, and the guilt offerings. The very next chapter in 6 and 7, which outlines the kind of priestly directions regarding these same sacrifices, we have them in a different order, and most notably, the peace offering has been now moved to the very bottom of the list. But then you get to chapter 9, verse 22, which actually shows kind of the, the procedure in the, in the first worship service, if you would. And what we see is that the priests offer first the sin offering, then the burnt, and then finally the peace offerings. This is where I find the most kind of theological, theologically rich chronology, if you will. This is what theologians call the pathway to worship where Israel's sins would be dealt with and God's wrath would be turned away and where they would be then purified and consecrated to the Lord. And then in response to that, then they would enjoy renewed fellowship with him. So why do I even bring that up? I do so to acknowledge the fact that the sacrifices and the details and the offerings are at times complicated. If you're walking through this book with us, my, my guess is that you will feel that as well. Yet, at the end of the day, we must keep the main thing in focus. That the sacrificial system was a gracious, temporary, and symbolic provision designed to enable his people to dwell safely in and to truly enjoy his presence among them. And likewise, these sacrifices and offerings, yeah, they might be complicated. They might be far more detailed than what you would like to have. But these were the primary way that ancient Israel would worship their covenant king. Second kind of high-level observation is that every offering that is mentioned throughout the book is costly and requires significant sacrifice on behalf of the worshiper. As you scan through all of these sacrifices and offerings, as you look at the times that they were, at all the times they're mentioned in the Pentateuch, one of the things that you can't overstate or overlook is the fact that this is a costly act of worship especially for an agrarian society comprised of people who literally just had been enslaved in Egypt. What they offered was the best that they had, the, the bull that made farming possible. It was the unblemished lamb, the unblemished lamb that would have been perfect for breeding. It would have been most valuable of the flock. It was the first fruits that were topped with costly oils and salts. It was the, the, the fatty portions, the best portions of the meat that were offered to the Lord. This was a costly worship. Friends, all of this showed not only the importance of the offering and not only showed that the people were being obedient to the commands of God, but these, the significance, the, the, the importance of these offerings stands as a portrait of the worshiper's wholehearted and complete devotion to their gracious and holy king. 
He deserved it. And they did not begrudgingly offer it to him. It was a joyful present to present to the king of kings. Third kind of high-level statement I'll say is this, is that as we read about the sacrifices here in Leviticus, my Bible reading plan has me in numbers right now, and it becomes like even more clear there that there is a startling openness to God's prescribed worship. And what I mean by that is that we'll be repeatedly told that if anyone brings an offering, like anyone brings an offering to the Lord. What this points us to is there's a universality to the opportunity to present offerings to the Lord. We'll see in our very text today how God makes purposeful provisions so that the rich and the poor can present offerings to the Lord and that nobody is excluded. We'll see provisions later for sojourners and and outsiders to be able to present offerings to the Lord. And I, I think it's really astounding. And yet, within this astounding openness or accommodation, we also see that in light of God's complete holiness, the Lord had strict guidelines for what and how these offerings were to be presented. So lest we read these various forms of offerings or the fact that anyone is able to present them as simply God just opening the door and saying, do whatever you want, follow your heart. What matters is your heart, not your actions. I'm fairly apathetic about the entire system. Our texts are clear that the Lord may only be approached according to his terms. And that sacrifices made outside of God's prescription would not only not be accepted, but they would be considered blasphemous to the Lord. And that the Lord himself would pour out wrath upon those who are disobedient as we shall see with Aaron's son's offering of some strange fire to the Lord later on. So there's grace in constituting the sacrificial system. There's grace in providing a way that anyone can participate. And there's also strict guidelines that must be followed for our God is indeed a holy consuming fire. And he may only be approached with humble obedience. I would suggest to you there's so many implications and applications for us as a church family from this. And especially for how we are to gather as a fellowship in corporate worship. What we're to do in our gatherings. Do we seek to be cute or creative? Or do we seek to listen to God and present to him the offerings and the actions that he does require? So with these kind of three introductory statements, uh, I just want to briefly look at these first three offerings that we read in Leviticus. Namely, the burnt offering, which some people call the ascension offering. The grain offering, which is sometimes known as the tribute offering. And then the peace offering, which is sometimes known as the fellowship offering. The burnt offering is the first one outlined in Leviticus 1, because, likely because it's the oldest and probably the most significant of the offerings presented to the Lord. Within our text, we see that the Lord, through his mediator Moses, outlines what and how these offerings are to be made. And with some kind of slight deviation due to the 
very nature of the animals, the process is pretty consistent. The worshiper is first to present, to go and select the best, highest quality animal that they can possibly afford. If they are to offer the, you could say, deluxe gift, they should present a bull. If they are only able to present a standard gift, then they are to bring forth a sheep or a goat. If they are so poor as to be unable to offer from a herd or flock, then God makes provision for them to bring turtle doves or pigeons. And again, I just pause there and say, what gracious provision from the Lord. Like we shouldn't take this for granted that anyone and everyone, no matter how poor they may be, that all are welcome to worship him according to their means. That that it wasn't just for the rich to commune with the Lord, to worship him, that God had made a way for all people. So the offerer would carefully choose and bring forth an animal to the courtyard of the tabernacle, to the altar, and would present it to the priest. The offerer would then lay his hand or her hand upon the head in some way identifying themselves with the animals, probably a proclamation that this animal is mine and it represents me. Well, dig in more and more to that as we talk about atonement and substitution, especially next week. But it appears at this point, though, that it is the worshiper who then would slaughter the animal that was presented. It must be skinned and dismembered and then washed. Now, we're not 100% sure that it is actually the worshiper who does that act of sacrificing. There's debate as to whether the worshiper knew how to do it or was capable of doing it. We're not sure. But one thing is, in fact, clear is that no matter how involved the worshiper was in the actual killing of the animal, there were things that they were not allowed to be involved in, in this sacrifice. Things that only the priests were able to perform. The, it was the priests who would collect the blood and splash it against the altar. It was the priests who would arrange the wood on the altar and lay out the pieces. And the priests who would ensure that it would, in its entirety, be wholly consumed. But when this happens, this offering would, quote, be a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, we're going to read that time and time again. And so just to pause here for a second and say, please don't misunderstand these phrases. God does not eat the offering. And God is not sitting up in heaven, sniffing the air, hoping that he might smell a sweet, burnt goat. Psalm 50 verse 13 rejects this kind of literalistic interpretation by saying, shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? His answer is like, obviously no. I'm a spirit. But these phrases are are a vivid way of communicating God's acceptance and delight in the worshiper's offerings and sacrifices. Sacrifices that are made according to his design and command. It communicates that these actions done in this way are pure and acceptable and delightful for him. Now, one more brief comment on the burnt offering that I need to point out. It seems to me to be a more muted theme here in chapter 1, but it, it will certainly be developed as we work throughout the book. 
But verse 4 of chapter 1 says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him, quote, to make atonement for him. So the burnt offering in some form or fashion had what you'll say, what we say is an atoning function for the worshiper. Again, we're going to get into this. I'm not going to uh, answer all your questions today. Thankfully, we have future weeks, Lord willing. But at this point, I'll simply say that one of the functions of this offering was to both ransom the sinner from death and sin and to purify them before the Lord. But I find it interesting, though, that although the burnt offering certainly does in some way make atonement for sin, the burnt offering actually performed a whole host of functions throughout the history and people of Israel. And I actually believe the maybe elasticity of the function is why it's included first here within our text. Because the first three stand uniquely as voluntary free will offerings to the Lord. But burnt offerings in Psalm 66 accompanied prayers of praise and thanksgiving. 1 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 24, these offerings emphasize the seriousness of petitions. Exodus 24, it's used to ratify a covenant. Genesis 8, after the flood, the offering not only proclaimed thanksgiving and praise, but it marked out a new beginning and a new devotion to the Lord. And thus it stands here, I believe, as not only uniquely important, not only performing some type of atoning work, but it was a preeminent free will, voluntary, extravagant gift that worshipers would offer to praise the holy, saving, gracious God who was now in their presence. Now, moving on to chapter two, if you will, the next offering that we see is a grain offering. Many of the same themes that we've seen addressed run throughout this chapter as well. Once again, we'll notice a, we'll see a noticeable absence of imperatives here, which gives us the impression that this is yet another voluntary free will offering that celebrates and praises the Lord for his grace and mercy. From this, we get this rich stream of ideas throughout these, first, these next two offerings, themes of access to God, devotion to him, adoration with him, adoration for him, fellowship with him. The grain offerings description prevents, pre- presents a variety of forms and options as well. Verses one, and, 1 through 3 speak of offerings of raw flour. Verses 4 through 10 Various forms of cooked flour, 14 through 16, first fruits of new grain. But woven throughout these varied, varied expressions, though, we find yet again that generous, costly offerings are being offered to the Lord. Oil and frankincense are described as well as not just regular flour, but, quote, fine flour is being freely offered to the Lord. Salts would be used not only as a costly special topping, but as a preservative that seemingly stood as a symbol of the enduring covenant between God and Israel. And friends, first fruits are what they sound like they would be. 
After weeks and months of laboring and tending to the crops, the worshiper willingly chooses to offer up to the Lord their very best, the very first of their produce to the Lord as a proclamation of their wholehearted devotion and worship to him. These costly gifts are the only type of gifts that are fit for a holy God. They require sacrifice, dedication, preparation, and an unwavering commitment to honor God above all else, including their appetites and their needs and their own self-indulgence. For remember what kind of society this was. These grains and foods would not only have been a source of income, but this would have been the food off their very own table. This would have been what they needed to sustain their lives and their families' lives. But no gift is too extravagant. No offering is too costly to joyfully give to a God who saves and dwells amongst his people. The grain offering, though, although not explicitly stating, stated, is clearly a meal of celebration and thanksgiving. The grain offering symbolized uh, a heart of joy and thanksgiving for the God who rescued them from Egypt and now graciously dwells in their midst. And that is why it is truly a pleasing aroma to him. And finally, moving to chapter 3, the third offering that we see is the peace offering. The peace offering. This third offering is the only one that explicitly employs the word sacrifice within its initial naming at least. And it stands as a reminder and celebration of the deliverance worked by God. It celebrates the peace and fellowship that now exists between king and subject. This, this offering is, is, is deeply communal in its nature. So once again, there are options as to how the sacrifice could be offered. We see that this could be a male or a female of the herd. It could also come from a flock, being a lamb or a a goat. But regardless of the animal, we have to notice that it must be without blemish before the Lord. So once again, we find this detailed procedure by which any animal was to be sacrificed, what was to be done with the various elements. We don't have time to get into all that. We'll tackle it later. But it's important for us to know that burnt offering preceded the peace offering. Burnt offerings preceded the peace offerings. And that makes sense, right? As we saw, the burnt offerings has some sort of atoning function. And what that means is that sin must be dealt with before fellowship can be experienced. And that's why we see that the peace offering is laid on top of the burnt offering to the Lord. What is the most unique and notable and beautiful aspect of the peace offering, though, is what happened to the sacrifice after it was made. Outside of the fat and the blood, which were forbidden from being eaten, unlike any other sacrifice, Leviticus 7, 15 and 16 fills the gaps and, he, and tells us that the entire rest of this animal was actually to be eaten by the worshiper themselves. Nothing else is like it. This is completely unique and it's astonishing. With the burnt offering, nothing was to be eaten by the priest or by the worshiper. With the 
Some of the offerings, the priests were able to eat a portion to bless and support them in their work. But here we find that the worshiper themselves get to share in the meal. Thus, the picture that we get is that the Lord, the priests, and the laity all share in this same meal together. They experience table fellowship together as they celebrate the peace that now exists between God and them. My friends, what a stunning image, isn't that? That the God who feeds his people in the wilderness, the same God that causes the crops to grow, the same God who speaks and makes a way for his people to safely dwell in his holy presence, he is now pictured as the God who not only accepts this food offering, but hosts a dinner party and welcomes us near. He does not merely tolerate his people. He invites us near. He welcomes us in. He dines with us and considers all of it to be a pleasing aroma to him. So that now leads us to our third and final brief point that we'll consider. And that third point, as I mentioned, is the final point of our theme statement. It's the grace of our saving holy king that leads his people to worship. And it is only because of that grace that he receives and responds to the sacrifices of his people. As we established last week, Leviticus is about the presence of God among his people. It's about the problem of his presence among his people because he is pure and they are impure. And yet Leviticus outlines his provisional plan to address that problem. What is the solution to that problem? Well, the solution is in part this very sacrificial system that we read of today. It is a temporary and symbolic means by which God would indeed draw near and the people could safely draw near to him. But I want to conclude our time once again by pointing to the fact that all of this, all the sacrifices, all the animals, all the voluntary gifts, all the feasts, all the festivals, all of this points to the gracious, to the grace and provision of our holy king. For one thing is sure, right? God doesn't need any of these things. He's not hungry. God doesn't need a slaughtered bull and he doesn't need unleavened bread. God doesn't need a meal to share with priests and worshipers. No, these were temporary and symbolic acts that invited the people close. It involved them. It invited them to participate in drawing near. They were tangible expressions of the miracles of atonement and communion, of table fellowship and restored enjoyment of relationship. As I pondered that this week, I was drawn once again to reflect upon Romans chapter 12, which if you're familiar with that book, you know that the first half of the book is all about the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the gracious workings of God to save a people who were hell-bent on running away from him and coming up against him. But then in chapter 12, we see this shift that see, basically answers the question, so in light of all that God has done, in light of the grace and saving holiness of God, what are we to do in response? 
In chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. My friends, this is our call and our application. For in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is himself the full and final wrath-assuaging sacrifice, in light of the fact that God has now, in a new and even more expansive way, opened up salvation to anyone who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, in light of the fact that because of Jesus, God not only dwells among us, but he actually takes up residence inside of us through his Holy Spirit— then we respond by offering up our own lives as whole burnt offerings to the Lord. Fully consumed, fully devoted to him. We ought to live lives that are wholly given over to the Lord, wholly surrendered to him as the best gift that we can offer in praise and thanksgiving. We no longer need to offer up bulls and goats, unleavened bread, or torn up birds. We are to offer our entire lives. Our entire lives, which ought to be costly and sacrificial. Our time, our finances, our service, our gifts, our hospitality, our obedience, In light of all that God has done, he deserves even more than that. But that is all we have to bring. We respond to the grace of our Lord by offering up ourselves as a sacrifice to him, fully, voluntarily, and joyfully given to our saving, holy God. For as we begin, so too shall we conclude. It is the grace of our saving, holy King that leads his people to worship. And it is only because of that grace that he receives and responds to the offerings of his people. Would you please pray with me? God, in your grace and kindness, through your Holy Spirit, we pray, O Lord, that you would enrich our minds and understanding, that we might understand your word, might treasure it, and that we might live in obedience, God. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.